This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The subway gunman, who used to be Bernie Getz, is now Frank James. Subway gunman, that was the appellation that always prefaced Bernie Getz's name. He's a figure from the 80s and also from the lyrics of We Didn't Start the Fire. It now belongs to this 62-year-old man from Wisconsin and Pennsylvania who used smoke bombs and firearms to wound 10 people, a few critically, so far none fatally. Now we get to the motivations of the gunman, and as I have said over and over on this show, it is a fool's errand. Crazy. I'll use that phrase colloquially, though it's apparent that it's accurate. Crazy people are motivated by their craziness. Mentally ill people will affix on motivations that are no more legitimate than an owl affixing on a field mouse. It's not the fault or quality of legitimacy of the field mouse that attracted the owl, just that the owl was compelled by his owlness to strike the mouse. Just as a certain kind of mentally ill person, untreated, often discarded by society, will lash out. Now, it is true that the objects of obsession of the ill, the mentally ill, the violently mentally ill, a very small fraction, we should say, of the mentally ill. But the objects of their obsessions are driven by what's in the ether and what's in the culture. Aliens used to be a popular motivation. Satan still drives a lot of people to do ill. But the angriest political and sociological rhetoric drives others. When the object of a mentally ill person is a group that is sympathetic, it's natural for all of us to say, ah, this, this is the consequence of all our collective hatred around this group. For non-mentally ill shooters or terrorists, I would say, yes, hate is the driver. But for mentally ill people, the illness is the driver. It is true that the obsessions of an attacker can be created by the same forces that create the obsessions of the rest of us, but it is I would say it's often not the smartest, best, most accurate, most ethical, most constructive way to mentally process a shooting to ask yourself, what was he mad at? This, the fact that the shooter acted on that madness, says something about the group who was attacked. It mostly says something about the person who committed the violence. That said... The media is doing a quite confusing job explaining what this shooter's so-called or quote-unquote motivations were. The New York Times tells us that the shooter, who I'm not going to use his name except as I did at the front to identify him, that the shooter was bigoted. Bigoted, they say, quote, lengthy rants in which he expressed a variety of harshly bigoted views. They also said, quote, delivering extended tirades and many of them overtly concerned with race and violence. So, who were these bigoted rants targeted against? Who was the object of the racism? The Times doesn't say racism. I presume in deference to the idea that racism is a contested phrase among some in our culture. Some allege that it racism can only be perpetrated by the dominant culture. 
that said, the Times later identifies the objects of his hatred with the phrase, he disparaged black people and particularly black women, and he criticized Mayor Eric Adams for his recent policies focusing on homeless people and the safety in the subway system. That's accurate. It's true. He did that. But his videos, which have been taken down, I watched them, and I certainly am not going to play any of them, but they were bigoted against everyone against all races. He insulted Hispanic people, Puerto Ricans, whites. He railed against interracial marriage. He aggressively used the N-word in a hateful, not a familiar way. He vowed violence against whites. He was obsessed with the subway. He, in one video, screams at a variety of people on the street and screams at Asians on the street and insults them. And you get scared just watching this video, not even knowing what he did. Just the video itself is a horrible art fact. It underscores for me the folly of looking at the target of mental ill violence and including much of anything other than mental illness goes untreated, guns are way too readily available, and there are terrible consequences for those things. I suspect that the motivations of this shooter are just such a hateful melange that we will see some groups claiming to be specifically victimized, and I have sympathy, of course, for all the victims, but the conclusion will land on that this guy had a free-floating and free-flowing hatred just towards his fellow humans, and he adopted a racialized lens to process that feeling, and that too is shaped by society. The next bits of information that I'm interested in are how he'll be charged. Will it be a terrorist? It seems like he will be charged as a terrorist, a hate crime, how he got his weapon, and how much of his antipathies will be used by others who would never literally use weapons, but aren't afraid to figuratively weaponize a tragedy. On the show today, I spiel about ethanol or maybe ethanol. I switch things up. You're lucky, aren't you? There'll also be a ton of statistics and a town in Nebraska. But first, Biohacked Family Secrets is a podcast about the donor conception industry. With 23andMe and so many at-home DNA kits increasing in popularity, people are finding out their parentage isn't always what they've been told. The practical, ethical, and emotional effects of these shocks are rich fodder for journalist and host TJ Raphael, who joins me to talk about the Biohacked podcast. A few years ago, a woman did a 23andMe test, and she found some interesting results. Her ethnicity was not what her family had told her it was, and she reported this back to them, and they had some answers but seemed to blow it off. But she did a little more digging, and she did a little more fact-finding, and she found out that a lot more was different than what she had been led to believe. In fact, the entire question of her paternity, which is to say her identity, was upended by that 23andMe test. This is not, as you know, an isolated example. That woman linked up with others. And there are now many people who 
because of consequences of tests like 23andMe, are wondering, am I who they always told me I was? This is, I would say, the spine or main through line behind the new podcast, Biohacked, Family Secrets. But it does, as great podcasts do, go off in fascinating tangential directions. Journalist TJ Raphael is the host and reporter of Biohacked. She joins me now. Hello, TJ. Welcome to The Gist. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I know this story, and you reported on your show, started many years ago with a friend and a personal connection. But what was told to you back, when was that, like 2017? Yeah, it was the summer of 2017, and I had bumped into my friend Amber in Brooklyn. She was an old college classmate of mine that I hadn't honestly seen in almost 10 years. And she said, oh, my husband and I are going to the beach this weekend. Do you want to join? I live in New York. They had a car. So I said, absolutely. (laughs) I'm there. Uh, So we were hanging out. It was actually kind of awkward because we hadn't seen each other in so long. And we're floating in the water, catching up. What's new with you? And she says, Well, I just did this 23andMe test and I found out my dad is not my dad and I'm actually from conceived through an anonymous sperm donor. And she learned this because this woman on 23andMe had messaged her. Turned out it was her half-sister. They were born three weeks apart in the Albany, New York area, grew up on opposite ends of the same road, and actually wound up crossing paths numerous times, though they weren't aware of it, at, you know, high school parties. Right, like they would find out that they were in the same, you know, underground punk club or something. I was at that <laughs> yeah. party, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't notice someone who looked almost, not exactly, but very much like me was at the party. Right. I mean, I imagine, you know, these, you know, basement punk shows are probably pretty dark. And uh, also when you're a 17 year old kid, you might not be the most self-aware. So, uh, you know, they kind of crossed like ships in the night uh, for a few years. And then it wasn't until this 23andMe test that they linked up. And then they set out on a journey to track down their biological father, their anonymous sperm donor. And as uh, Amber, uh, who I interview in the show and kind of follow throughout the show, um, as she started on this journey, me being a nosy journalist, I said, can I record you? (laughs) And she said, yes. And so we've done a series of interviews over the years of her struggle to find her donor. And then also what she learned after um, she was able to connect with him. I think a lot of the stories we see in the media about donor conception and and the use of at-home DNA kits, it's like the story ends when you find the person. But for for Amber, that was just the beginning of the story. She started looking into the policies of the fertility industry and how how could it be possible that she might have 75 or 150 half-siblings out there? How is it possible that all of the records related to the clinic that she was conceived at were destroyed? And how is that kind of legal? And from there, um, you know, a lot of fascinating stories wind up being spun out of there. Um, And that's what we cover in the show. Right. So let me go back to 2017. You're talking to Amber. How far was she from first hearing these revelations? And as you detail in the show, it wasn't all presented to her immediately. She had to kind of do some digging of herself. So how far was she from realizing, oh, the man I thought was my biological dad isn't? Yeah, so she had just learned that. Literally, I think three weeks before we had met up, she had just learned that information. And when she she conveyed it to you, what were her emotions? uh, She was shocked. She was rattled. She felt that half of who she is, she had no idea 
who this person was. She had no idea if this person was still alive. She had no idea if she might ever find him or speak with him. Uh, she had no idea what might be in store for her as it relates to medical history. Most most donors donate when they're 23 or 24. And a lot of health ailments in a person's life don't pop up maybe until their 30s or 40s. And there's no law that says donors need to actually update their medical records. Um, and if a clinic closes, you're kind of just out of luck. So she was uh, sort of rattled on many different fronts as it related to who am I, where do I come from, and what's in store for me down the line. But in the last five years, I take it sh- her attitude uh, has changed a lot, but also as the, the amount of information she has gleaned from her uh, origins has also changed. Yeah, so Amber has been able to connect with her, as she calls him, her bio dad. Um, And since 2017, they've identified 10 more half-siblings through at-home DNA tests. And, uh, you know, she's able to get... she has been able to get information, health information, information on her heritage, her ethnicity, her family sort of history. But in doing all of that, she's joined this group called We Are Donor Conceived, and it's part activism group, part support community. And as being a member of that group, new people pop up every single day in that group that are just like Amber, that have no idea where to start, no idea who their relatives might be. Um, and in in sort of going through this process, she's become an activist to try to say, this is not okay that all these people continue to be traumatized. I mean, for me, Amber, she's in her mid-30s. She really represents the first generation of human beings really ever conceived with this technology on a wide scale. It wasn't until the 80s that this technology really started to be employed pretty regularly. And so it's really a story about the first generation of people being conceived with a new technology and then another new technology kind of upending everything that institutions thought could be hidden forever. Right, right. And in both cases, I would say both of those technologies, to paraphrase Jurassic Park, the scientists were so busy asking questions, how do we do that? How do we do this? They never stopped to ask why. So with 23andMe, it's like, okay, we'll tell you all about your genetics. They could have called it Pandora's Box and me. I probably just blew all my opportunities to advertise 23andMe, (laughs) but that's okay. And originally with you and you originally with the technology for sperm donation. And there's a whole episode about how that started. And you spoke to the man who they called Sperman Sherman, (laughs) (laughs) the the genius inventor of a lot of the donation technology. But, you know, you spoke to the guy, You, you essentially spoke to the Edison of this industry. He never thought about many of the ethical ramifications or I think it's better put that he thought there were ethical ramifications, but he didn't quite grasp the enormity of them. Is that right? Yeah. So when I uh, talked with Jerome Sherman, he's now 96 years old. He's the inventor of cell cryopreservation, in addition to being able to freeze sperm to be used in the baby business, you know, all self-freezing technology comes out of Jerome Sherman's innovation. Um, I asked him about 23andMe tests, and he didn't even really know what they were. Um, You know, he is 96 years old. He's not very online, as uh, the youths like to say, (laughs) or maybe just me. Um, But yeah, he didn't really even understand what those tests were. And then when I told him about them and how donor-conceived people are accidentally finding people, he said, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's good. 
a, a good thing to have happen. So, yeah, I mean, in ter- in his view, um, you know, when he invented this technology in 1954, I mean, the idea of an at-home, you know, the human genome hadn't even been sequenced. DNA hadn't even been discovered. So the idea that, you know, in generations to come that you know, somebody could spit in a tube at home, mail their sample away and then get a notification on an app and have it upend their family. That was for him literally a state of science fiction. Yeah. I mean, in 1954, there were what, 48 states. So (laughs) so um, it does seem, though, that all of the ethical considerations of sperm donation, donor sperm, even when done with proper ethics, and then you detail some instances when they clearly weren't, the audience or the people that they had in mind of treating well and treating properly were the donors and the parents. I haven't, at least through your reporting, come across too much deep discussion or hand-wringing about the children. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean... It makes sense to me when you think about um, the process of sperm and egg donation as a business and not as a medical procedure. And that's really what it is today. It's not even a donation. It's it's interesting that we even call it that because people are not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They're getting paid to do this. And so sperm donors and egg donors are like vendors. They're paid for producing a product. And cryobanks um, are distributors. They distribute that product to clients, recipient parents. And so, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of consideration for uh, the people that the children of sperm and egg donors will become. And I think a lot of fertility medicine focuses on creating a living baby and not really, you know, what's going to happen 20 years from now after that baby grows up or 30 years, et cetera. It's it's about creating a baby. It's not really about the full scope of that person's life as they move through life. And it's interesting because most parents are going to be parents to adult children more longer than they will be to young children. Yes, <laughs> like, that's how literally. lifespans work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Yeah. But there hasn't been a much consideration of that. Um, even even today, and, and as we go through the season, I talk to people that are currently still practicing in fertility medicine, and, and they still feel that, yeah, you know, what about the parents? What about the donors? And there's not a lot of conversation about, you know, the donor-conceived people that are now adults. Because people use a sperm donor or a sperm contractee to get a baby. <laughs> they don't use it to get a 24-year-old, but guess what babies become most <laughs> yeah. of the time. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so one interesting aspect of this is for me, I was mostly experiencing your stories through the eyes of Amber's parents who were or, or the parents in general. And obviously you, Amber was your friend and she's the main character and I think the orientation of the podcast is mostly through the people who just found out about their father wasn't who they were told their whole lives. And you have a phrase in there about, you know, Amber's parents being boomers and they might have had uh, trauma around their infertility. They might have been told to keep a secret or their generation keeps their family business private. I guess that's all true, but without being uh, situated in a generational explanation, like the fact that they were boomers, I just thought most of those reactions were quite understandable and I was actually sympathetic to them. But it seems like, not that you weren't sympathetic to them, but you just instinctively or through your choice, your journalistic choices, didn't necessarily take that point of view. 
Yeah, I mean, I can understand. I, I, I do think it's more generational why Amber's parents would want to keep the secret for, you know, some of the reasons that I, I laid out in the show, but also, you know, how the culture has changed generally. Like, there are tons of mommy blogs talking about infertility. There are tons of Facebook groups. Like, it is kind of talked about pretty openly um, in media. Like, I know that there's that television show with Catherine Han about infertility. I forgot who she co-stars next to uh, in Master of None. They're talking about sperm donors. Like, there is, uh, you know, shows currently on Hulu talking about infertility. Like, from a cultural standpoint, in 2022, I think infertility is not something that not to the extreme that it was maybe in the 1980s that that people are so ashamed to talk about um and i and i do feel for amber's parents but i also you know given my research into the literature like i've actually looked at handbooks from the asrm from the 80s it was encouraged by doctors they counseled parents do not ever tell anyone do not ever tell your children keep this a secret it's better for everyone involved. And when you have a medical professional telling you this, that this is the best practice for your child and for your family, it's understandable how that idea could really shape your perception for years to come. Now, the current you know, psychological literature as it relates to donor conception and even adoption as well is to disclose early and often. It shouldn't be something that's a shameful secret because I think decades on you can have severe, uh, you know, psychological trauma from that revelation. Yeah, I think that I think that you really put your finger on it. It is generational. But I also think what is going on is the viability of keeping the secret. There was no, as we've already documented, no conception that there would be a way for people to know about this and that 23andMe and the human, bio, human Genome Project would be widely available. So when someone is giving advice like, look, you could keep this private and you will know it and they don't have to, that was a totally rational way to orient a person who was dealing with the realities of the world at that time. So while at the same time the idea of privacy has changed, a lot of it is because technology has thrust that change upon it. So I am a little more sympathetic. You know, I don't know if doctors were being ethical, unethical, or just maybe short-sighted, or they didn't read enough science fiction at the time to know how the world would change to, you know, probably have a better way of dealing with this, which is you're going to have to be open because they're going to find out anyway. Right. And I think there there is a point in the show where I say, you know, there used to be kind of practicality to all of this. If you told a child, you know, finding the donor would be nearly impossible without the Internet and DNA. So why bother to bring it up at all? So I, I do think and I, and this is all to say, like, I I am hoping I'm not coming across as like blaming parents, because I think if you're a parent and you are desperate to have a child and a doctor says, here's the solution, keep it secret. Of course, you you know, people nowadays, they mortgage their houses to have children to use fertility medicine. It's extremely expensive. You know, the business, I think, last year was valued at almost $19 billion. And VC firms, investors are at, in 2019 poured, I think, $624 million into the space. So it's a cash cow. And if people are desperate to have children, they will. And if they, and they're going to follow their doctor's advice. So I don't I, I, Amber doesn't blame her parents. And I don't think that they're at fault either for keeping this secret for so long. I think what's happened is, you know, 
advice has changed. And I think that's also related to adoption. Obviously, donor conception and adoption are different, but it used to be in the 70s and 80s. You don't tell a kid that they're adopted. You keep that secret. And then I think by the 90s and early 2000s, that really started to change. The adoptee rights movement really ushered that in. And I believe, you know, what Amber and her group are doing is really kind of, then they've said to me and I've spoke with, um, you know, heads, the head of the American Adoption Congress, which is an advocacy group for adopted people. They are working together right now, donor conceived people with adoption advocates to essentially take a page from their playbook as it relates to, uh, you know, New York State right now. Adopted people can do have a legal right to request a- access to their records as it relates to their original birth certificate. So. I think, and that's one of the things that really interested me about this story is um, how with technology, like new movements, in this case, you know, the right to be able to access information about your conception through fertility medicine, you know, how this movement wouldn't have taken shape really without 23andMe. And 23andMe only really became, you know, popular in 2016. They sold a, a million kits in 2016. And last year they sold 12 million. Uh, they, they also went public. You know, they're a publicly traded company now. And I think more and more people are going to start learning surprising things because they've gone public. You know, when you're a publicly traded company, you got to keep your your margins high. You got to keep turnover. I think the price of these kits, they're now about 100 bucks, are going to fall once they're, you know, 50 bucks, you know, $40. I think a lot more people are going to do them. And, you know, they have a vested interest in having as many users as possible. So I think more family secrets, whether it's related to donor conception or something else, are going to wind up coming popping up because of things like at-home DNA kits. We are going to hold it right there because we'll be back with a part two tomorrow. There are a raft of issues around this, including the legal side of things, advocates who are working, people who were conceived by anonymous sperm and egg donations. And TJ will be back to talk about biohacked family secrets again tomorrow. And now the spiel. Yesterday, President Joe Biden made an announcement that had him cheering. Some context for the clip you're about to hear. If it seems far less exciting than the response it engenders, know that the announcement was about corn-based ethanol and the M that we're cheering, eh, corn farmers. But the Environmental Protection Agency is planning to issue an emergency waiver to allow E15 gasoline that uses more ethanol from homegrown crops to be sold across the United States this summer in order to increase fuel supply. The headlines afterwards reflected the orientation of different outlets. The Washington Post hit the corn angle hard. How Biden is trying to lower fuel prices with corn. The Wall Street Journal, like the move less, Biden's ethanol gas price trick. Other headlines in the Wall Street Journal's news, not opinion pages, played up the tension between industries. Food fight heats up for ethanol and Biden's ethanol move boosts producers, worries meat companies. The remarkable thing about the headlines were that 
they were headlines at all. This wasn't front page news, but it was covered everywhere. In the business press as a story of winners or losers. In the mainstream press, New York Times, Washington Post, NBC as a conflict between consumers and the environment. NBC quoted Jim Walsh, policy director of Food and Water Watch, a nonprofit, this is how NBC described it, a nonprofit group that opposes the use of ethanol as a climate solution, quoted him as saying, I'll let you guess. He liked it, right? No, he didn't. Quote, this is a quick fix that will harm the planet and not do much to support consumers. I agree. I also would have agreed had Jim Walsh said, this is a quick fix that will benefit consumers and not do much to harm the planet. I have no comment on the meat angle. I know the meat men are worried about feeding their cows pricier corn, but on the ethanol front, which I sometimes call ethanol, so just be warned, on the ethanol ethanol front, I'm going to break things down for you, much like C2H6OH is broken down by enzymes that's inside the body. In the atmosphere, it doesn't break down great when it leaks out of a tailpipe, not readily, and over a certain amount, ethanol creates smog. On the other hand, ethanol is a biomass not extracted from the ground, so there's some benefit to mixing it in with the gas, and that's what we do. Almost all U.S. gasoline uses some ethanol. The blend's typically 10% ethanol, 90% oil. That meets renewable fuel standards set by the government. A lot of environmentalists point out correctly, the renewable fuel standards aren't non-polluting or even much better than gasoline when it comes to overall emissions. Because, you know, the corn's got to be grown and harvested and transported, and that all requires greenhouse emitting or carbon emitting, greenhouse contributing fuel. Sometimes, by the way, think about it. You got a truck, it's transporting corn. That truck is also using ethanol, the corn, to drive itself. It's like cannibalistic. It's macabre. But anyway, the ethanol that Biden approved is called E15. It has 15% ethanol instead of the 10%. Comes at a cost to the air. Comes with a little bit of benefit to consumers. How much? Gas will be 5 to 10 cents cheaper seems to be the consensus. So how much will it further endanger our dying planet? I'll tell you. Two years ago, a USDA study said that ethanol's carbon intensity was 39% lower than gasoline. Yay! A new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences said ethanol is 24% more carbon intensive than gasoline due to what we were just talking about, the carbon costs of corn and using those bits of corn to fuel the trucks in a never-ending cycle, not a cycle, a maze of violence. Anyway, so 15% of the fluid we put in our cars with the E15 blend is 24% worse than if we're just gas, which it never is. It's always at least 10% ethanol. But 24% of 15%, that's like 3.5%. Every gallon of gas is 3.5% worse if you go by the latest study, not the 2019 one that said it was better. But let's go by the latest. Gasoline emits CO2. It's a greenhouse gas. It's the biggest one but we're going to zoom out. About a quarter of greenhouse gases in the U.S. come from transportation. All right, let's remember that 3.5% increased figure. Well, if you apply that to the 25% that comes from the transportation sector, it means that the U.S. increases less than 1% more CO2 than otherwise would be. Oh, but wait, that's just the U.S. The U.S. is a big industrialized country, right? Want to guess how much the U.S. contributes to the carbon output of the world? You probably know China contributes more than us. Do you know how much more? The answer on the next just... 
no, I will not do that to you. China contributes more carbon to the environment than every other developed country combined. Okay, that's a cool phrase, but let's just talk about the number. China contributes a little over 30% of greenhouse gas global emissions, the U.S. less than half of China's number. So this E15 environmental damage, already we've established it's contributing less than one-tenth of one percent to the increase in carbon emissions. And that's not a good thing. That would be a bad thing. But it's a really, really, really slightly bad thing when you take into account this next statistic that makes the other ones look like a Tonka truck next to a grain thrasher. There are 115,000 gas stations in the United States. There are 2,300 that are able to pump out the E15 blend. 98% of the gas stations don't even offer it. Bringing our potential contribution to the increase in carbon emissions to two thousandths of 1%, which by the way, also overstates things because it's not like every gas pump in those 2,300 stations are only pumping out the E15. Plenty of people will buy the regular E10 from those stations. What I did was I looked at how much carbon the US contributes to the environment. I say contributes, like it's a nice thing we're doing, pumps into the environment and it's five and a half billion tons. Went down a little during the pandemic. It's rebounded, yay. What does that even mean, five and a half billion tons? Well. The EPA is a good calculator. And so I put in how much uh, the increase was, how many tons uh, the new E15 gas might contribute to the environment. And it is the equivalent of 700 homes energy use for a year. Does that sound like it a lot? It doesn't to me. It might to you. Here's another way to look at it. The calculator says this thing we're fretting about, the E15, it's the equivalent or the equivalent greenhouse gas emissions avoided by 1.5 wind turbines. Not 1.5 thousand, just one and a half wind turbines takes care of all this E15 gas that we're talking about. I looked up the Bitcoin equivalent. It's like 300 Bitcoins, like manufacturing 300 Bitcoins. The Winklevosses, Winklevi, have 70,000 Bitcoins. Let's go back to the 700 homes, just in case you were trying to contextualize that. What would 700 extra homes, uh, U.S. homes worth of energy due to the Australian brush or beach erosion in the Maldives? Well, think about a city like Hayward, Nebraska. What if Hayward, Nebraska doubled in size? Does it bother you? If you're saying, yeah, it kind of does bother me, I gotcha, there is no Hayward, Nebraska. There is a Gordon, Nebraska. It is a city of about 700 homes. If it doubled, it really wouldn't matter to the big picture of the urgency of lessening carbon emissions, except for symbolism. I think, in general, these are costs that are not even worth fighting about. But here's the thing. Remember those 2,300 gas stations? It means there are benefits that are not even worth fighting about. Almost no, statistically speaking, very few Americans will get any of the benefits of the 5 to 10 cent cheaper gas. But... 10 cent savings to the people who have access to 2,300 gas stations, not much. Add it all up, it's a ridiculous waste of time, isn't it? Well, I kinda think not. If I were Biden, I would have in fact made the decision he did and made the speech he did, because if I can convince the public, the non-just listening public, who doesn't know all this, 
But if I could convince the public a little bit that I care and I'm doing something, it might have, it might redound to some benefit to his party in upcoming elections, not just the midterm, but in the future. And U.S. politics dictates that the more Democrats in federal elections, the more likely it is you will have meaningful progress on the issue of the environment. I know the Sunrise Coalition is always, you know, uh, chastising Democrats more so than Republicans, but it does seem for anything real to happen on the environment, it will require a majority of Democrats in the Senate, and that includes maybe a majority over Joe Biden, coal plant owning Joe Biden, holding the fulcrum, being the fulcrum on these issues. So that, I will say, makes the determination. There is a risk, a political risk. I talked about the political benefit. The political risk is you discourage environmentalists. They don't come out for the Democrats. But I would say it's all worth it, especially if the most vocal environmentalists, like the Food Plus Water fellow, gives their quotes to the media, but then doesn't beat up on Biden for weeks and weeks to come. The benefits of this really well-paid attention to action, quite small, politically and economically. The costs, environmentally, even smaller, slightly bit smaller, I'd have to say. Sadly, it's all that we can do, given the constraints of a war in Ukraine, the supply chain, and consumer demand. Well, there is one more thing we could do. We could argue about it, which has, in fact, been happening. So I say, knowing what you know now, ignore getting angry over this move to E15. That is a real plan to save energy. Today's show was produced by Corey Wara. It was just produced by Corey Wara. He is the GIST's assistant producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. But I'm telling you, it's all Corey today. Most days, it's all Michelle Pesca. She is the Peachfish Production Corn Wrangler. The GIST is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu depru duperu. And thanks for listening. Thank you.